Welcome to the Beyond the Clouds podcast. I'm Katie Dalmas, a grieving loved one. Where we have vulnerable, tear-jerking, heartfelt and inspiring conversations with people who have been given their expiration date. This series will explore the difficult conversations and raw emotions around knowing you're going to die and the new reality in accepting the inevitable. I'm here to help tell their story in their own voice. These conversations are something I would have loved to have captured from my beautiful mother before she passed away. So I'm here to bring insight and comfort to you and your loved ones during the journey that lies ahead. Time is the most important thing to me. I appreciate every minute that I have on this earth and I want more. On today's podcast episode, I'm joined by my beautiful friend, Cell. I've known her for a number of years, and she supported me through my roughest time. She was there every step of the way when my mum was ill and then after her passing, and I couldn't have been more grateful for her friendship. It's been my privilege to be a part of her very full and vibrant life, which is the exact words I would use to describe her personality. And what I think we can all learn from her is to how still live a very full and vibrant life when you are facing, unfortunately, the end of your life. I look forward to you all getting to know her as well as I do. Okay, hey everyone. My name's Sel, obviously. I just wanted to say thank you first off to Katie for this wonderful opportunity. I feel honored to be your first guest. I am a little bit about myself. I am 36 years old, uh, 36 years young actually. And uh, I got diagnosed when I was 34, so in June 2019. Basically, it's going to be a chronic disease that we're facing. I'm actually quite blessed in the sense that I still have a chance to beat the cancer and I'm very confident that I will. There are a lot of other people facing the same kind of situation that are in a more crazy and tough situation. And for me, we've known a lot of those people and those people are close family members and friends and obviously your mum. So it has been the arch enemy of everyone. So about myself, um, I am first generation Samoan, so Australian. My parents came to Australia in the 70s, 80s and established themselves. I didn't actually understand how they did that. They came with nothing but the clothes on their back, no car, not much funds. And their goal was to help support their family back in in Samoa, which is quite a small country. For those who don't know, it's in the South Pacific. Um, It's got a population of under 200,000, which is crazy to me because we live in Australia and it's very overpopulated. I wouldn't say overpopulated because we have a lot of land, but um, I'm very grateful that they made that decision to come to Australia because I've lived a very healthy and happy life until obviously the cancer. And for me, I don't see it as um, something that I get angry about. I am human, so there are moments where I do kind of tend to get um, frustrated and annoyed that I'm going through this situation. But I've also been someone who's been a very privileged person in the sense that I've always had a good life, uh, been brought up with a huge and loving family. Uh, Our culture is very supportive. A lot of times they're in your face even when you don't want them to be and invite yourself over when they're in the area, which is such a lovely thing and I think it's something that our society is kind of losing now with 
the whole social media and the internet, there's that sense of loss when it comes to that personal real connection where you actually have a conversation with eye contact and no screens in your way. So I had that upbringing where it was before the whole social media and the internet. So we did have phone calls, you know, catch up on Sundays, family dinners. Um, my parents raised me up in the inner west, so around Marrickville, Canterbury kind of area. And as I grew older, they got really nomadic and it got to a point where they kept moving further and further out west until they finally bought a house in Campbelltown. So that's where I lived um, uh, most of my teenage years and went to high school there, met a lot of people, including you, Katie, and yeah, started working in the hospital industry, which is kind of ironic. So I actually used to work at St. Vincent's Hospital and Sydney Eye Hospital, um, helping patients that are going through what I am today. So sometimes it's a bit of a full circle moment for me as a teenager, starting there at 18, I was the youngest of all the staff members, doctors, nurses, those were the colleagues I was surrounded with and a lot of times um, you're oblivious to um, the fact that life is going to end one day. You know, and working in a hospital I found that it taught me how to um, maintain my emotions and control them because I was a very, well I still am, an empathetic person. And I couldn't handle seeing patients not come back, you know, and I would question where they are and obviously if they have passed. So that was really hard for me. So I actually made the decision to leave Sydney Eye Hospital where I dealt with a lot of patients and built a quick rapport with them. And sometimes they were um, a relationship that lasted years. So it was hard for me as a young adult to deal with loss, you know, of strangers, you know, because I didn't really have anyone around that was close in the family that was dealing with a chronic illness or a terminal illness at the time. Yeah, it's interesting that it's come full circle for you and all your work in the hospital and supporting individuals in a position that you find yourself in now. And I can see when you speak about it, you can still see that emotional impact that it left on you. And... You, so you moved on from there. Where, what direction did you head in after that? Finally, I moved to another hospital. So St. Vincent's worked in anatomical pathology. So I typed up reports, like cancer reports, actually. And for me, it was the whole disconnect from actually seeing the patients. But it was also hard knowing what they had. So I remember there was a day where one of the scientists came up to me and she said to me, you shouldn't be here. You don't belong here you actually should be across the road. Across the road from St. Vincent's is COFA, which is College of Fine Arts. And she knew I was an artist. And it was something that, I, in my mind, ingrained by my mum, is only a hobby and it's not gonna get you anywhere. So for me, I wanted that stability, you know, in having a, you know, a job, you know, that was constantly bringing in the bread and the bacon, all of it. So eventually I took a risk you know, jumped out of my comfort zone and left and moved on to actually things I enjoyed. What 
was, what were you doing in that workspace or within that relationship with that colleague that made her realize that your true passion or direction might be in the creative arts space? It was literally, uh, we had a bond. Even though she was 15, 20 years older than me, we would have random conversations. And she would always ask me, what's a young person like you, full of life, doing in such a depressing place? And she had been a long-term employee of the hospital, so I didn't understand why she was trying to get rid of me. (laughs) But then I also knew that she had the life experience that I didn't have, and she encouraged me to pursue my dreams. She was living her dream. I wasn't. It's amazing when you have those pivotal people walk into your life at a time when you don't even realise you need them most and your whole life can change direction. And from knowing you, I've always seen you produce these beautiful artworks and it's something that brings you so much joy. So how has that continued to play a role in your life? To be honest, I put it in the backseat for a long time. I did move on to a different type of career, went into hospitality, which is where we met, which I'm grateful for. And it gave me a whole lot of new life um, skills, but it also opened my eyes to new opportunities. I realized I didn't have to be stuck in a nine to five dead end kind of job that I wasn't enjoying. And I realized that I should step out of my comfort zone more often because I, I believe that's where the magic happens. And I started on a path where I was being a little bit more selfish, but I wouldn't say selfish, I was more loving myself and doing things that I wanted even if people told you that you shouldn't. That's really powerful to realize that, especially so early on in life so that you do have so much more time to enjoy what your passions are. And where did that realization take you? Well, to be honest, it brought me onto a career path where I went into management, gained a whole new skill set, and then also realized um, that the more important things in life was time with the people that you care about and focusing on things that truly make you happy. And that was art. And to be honest, I didn't actually go back to art until I was diagnosed and had all this time on my hands because I was unable to work anymore. And it became something that was really therapeutic and soul restoring, was getting back into things that I was told I can't build a career out of. But then now in this time that I've had off, doing treatments, the the days and the weeks I'm strong, I'm able to, you know, paint, get all of my, um, I guess, emotions out as well. Um, And sounds a bit cheesy, but it really is something that helps me. It's like my therapy, like on a daily basis. And seeing the joy that my clients get when I give them an artwork. Um, I've done a few murals. So I've done a mural down at Food Theatre in Marrickville, which was something I've never done before and probably would have never done if I wasn't diagnosed with cancer and forced to leave management, you know, which wasn't my true passion. It was just something I was good at. And a lot of times people are like, I'm good at it. That's my passion. No, it's not always. You could be good at multiple things, but it's what really brings real joy to your life, which I know now is my art. So I took the courage to build a little Instagram page and start my little online business and, you know, start having like little casual jobs here and there. So I've got 10 commissions I've got in line, which has been awesome because, you know, in my head I was like, it's always that picture of a starving artist. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so incredible. And I've seen your artworks. They are amazing. And I think after getting to hear about your passion for it, so many of the listeners will be 
really wanting to see those. So we'll definitely make sure that in the show notes that we've got a link to your website so everybody can see the passion that you put onto a canvas or whichever form of art that you are creating, which I'm really excited about. Um, but you did mention, we were starting to talk a bit more there about how your diagnosis changed the course of your life and it did allow that space for your creative freedom. But I'd like to kind of take a step back and jump into the moment of when you received that diagnosis. So you're sitting there, it's you, is there a loved one present, the doctor, what words did they use to tell you and how did you feel? Yes, so I remember that day clearly. I was heavily drugged up on morphine, so I was a little bit happier than I probably would have been if I was in a sober mind. it was after my first surgery, which was an emergency surgery on the 6th of June, 2019. And I do remember at the time uh, saying to uh, TJ, who is my now husband, I can't go to the hospital because I have to uh, create a VM wall, which is visual merchandise the next day. So I was focused on work. And I kept saying, no, I don't want to go to the hospital, even though I had the pain, I kind of pushed through it. And remember, there was weeks, months that I would feel this pain previously. So it had been there for a while. And I just was had a really high pain tolerance. And I guess I was really driven in my new role. So I was focused on that instead of my own health, which is something that I guess everyone does every now and then. We forget about our own bodies. And I think it's really important to listen to your body. So for me, um, I did get the news after my um, emergency surgery and I obviously was just going into it thinking, it's nothing, it's just a cyst, it's normal, right? Because I've typed up so many um, reports beforehand about these cysts. The doctor came in, my mum and dad were present and uh, my fiance at the time, TJ, and we were all uh, there listening and he explained. He was very, um, almost robotic, very professional, I guess. Very clinical. Very matter of fact. He explained everything in medical terminology, which luckily is one of my qualifications. So when he explained, so the cyst that we pulled out is actually malignant, and it's actually an adenocarcinoma, which for me, I know exactly what that is. That's cancer, you know? So, um, you know, it took me a while, but obviously I was also off with the fairies a little bit, playing in morphine land. My fiance was taken away and he kind of went silent. My parents had no idea. They didn't have the medical um, terminology that I do. So it wasn't until the doctor left that we explained it, you know, to my parents. Um, It was a very different experience, but we were in St. Vincent's, best of the best. And, you know, I guess for the doctor, it was hard for him to show like that empathetic side. I guess it's something that they do every day and it becomes to be monotonous. Do you think delivering it in that way, that very clinical matter of fact way, in some ways makes it easier? to understand and process the information? Probably not. For me, I felt like it was an easy way for the doctor to explain it. And 
um, it wasn't the actual surgeon that explained it, it was his registrar. So I understand that comes from, you know, experience and, you know, tact. Uh, so it pretty much left the job on me and TJ to explain it to my parents and they didn't take it well. So I think there's a point where you also need to remember that you're a human and you're delivering this news to a human. So, you know, we gotta um, also be grateful that when we did get transferred from St. Vincent over to Chris O'Brien, empathy was something that they have in bounds. So, you know, what we could have lacked there, we also got in full fold. And do you think your experience working around patients in the hospital previously and writing up all those notes, did it make it a bit more daunting to face because you had seen all the possible outcomes that can present in this situation? I feel like um, I've also become a little bit, um, I guess, used to it that I was more just, okay, this is what I have, let's figure out what the next step was. I think it really made it easier for me to embrace, not so much my parents who haven't really had, you know, that understanding. So for most people, the word cancer is a very heavy word. So you hear it, it's thrown out there, people don't know how to deal with it a lot of times. And, you know, for me, I felt like having that background made it easier for me to handle because I actually have seen people who've come back from, you know, di um, diseases like cancer and other, you know, chronic illnesses that are out there. So, you know, we were in the practice of making people heal and feel better. So my faith has always been in the doctors and what their skills and capabilities are. It's really comforting that you have that perspective and that knowledge to take with you throughout this intense up and down journey that is cancer and since receiving that diagnosis has your relationship with your loved ones changed have they become maybe more smothering they want to protect you or has it frightened some people and have they pulled away it's definitely changed but i wouldn't say smothering my mom maybe a little bit smothering but that i think that's a natural mother's instinct um but yeah i think it's become all my relationships that are strong. There's a clear line of who the people that are really important to me are and who the people are probably acquaintances and time wasters. And it made me realize the type of people I wanted to surround me, the type of people that brought me joy, the type of people that made me happy, made me feel good. And it also gave me the permission to realize I didn't have to be a crowd pleaser and keep everyone happy and extend myself to a point where I was spreading myself too thin. So, you know, quality over quantity. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's something a lot of people could probably benefit from if they took that stock on their own life and their own relationships. Since the diagnosis, what's been the biggest changes in your life? What has your priorities changed? What really matters to you now? My priorities have definitely changed. It's no longer um, that career building businesswoman where I was just focused on climbing the ladder, you know, focused on material things. You know, I, we obviously had different goals before 
we wanted to have a big lavish wedding, we wanted to travel, you know, for a year, which is still on the bucket list. And we also wanted to buy a house, buy a nice car, all these things that are really irrelevant to me now, except for the traveling part. I feel like the traveling part is the most important part, experiences, accumulating experiences rather than objects. Um, and memories, making memories has been really important. Um, also, it's also given me the wake up call that I'm allowed to say no, like, because there's a lot of pressure a lot of times that you have to be at everything and you have to attend. Not everyone's like that. My husband is definitely a lot not like that. He's not someone who is obligated to do things. And he's taught me to do that too, which I think is really important. Because a lot of times you do push yourself to do a lot of things and necessarily it's not something you want to do. So I've learned that there is a beauty in not going to absolutely everything, but also really just figuring out what's important to you. And time is the most important thing to me. I appreciate every minute that I have on this earth and I want more. So for me, money, you know, Nice clothes, as much as I love them, it's not so much important anymore. What would be your top three bucket list to-dos? So travel's up there. Yep. Would it be number one? Maybe we'll rank them. So get your top three in-order bucket list items. So the top three would definitely be travel. Uh, travel within Australia. And the fact that I've lived in this country for 36 years and haven't seen all of it, um, and strangers from around the world come here and see the best of the best. So we do have a bucket list to travel around Australia, especially since we're locked in and have no choice. Mm -hmm. uh, traveling overseas is a big thing. So um, finding new experiences, learning new cultures, some languages would be nice as well. Um, and then also for us, uh, the third thing would probably be um, it's really silly it's just getting a bigger house so having more space and that's mainly obviously because I want to focus on you know practicing my skill set in when it comes to my art you know have more space to live life and really just appreciate those moments that necessarily could be boreal mundane to others but I'm grateful for because I'm here <laughs> amazing I think yeah, there's a lot that you want to do to fulfill life and get those experiences and create those beautiful memories with your husband, which will be so <coughs> cherished by you both. And it's really incredible. And I want to ask you something that might be a bit of a touchy subject, but I, knowing you, I know that this is something that you did really want and that you can no longer have, which was children. Yes. How have you and TJ, your husband, navigated that situation? Honestly, it's hard. Um, it's something you take for granted as a woman. It's something you automatically think, oh, well, one day I'm going to be a mum. And to be honest, in my 20s, I really enjoyed my 20s. I loved being single. I didn't want to have kids. I wasn't that nurturing a girl that was always getting googly eyes over any baby that passed. I come from a huge family. so. In a lot of senses, I feel like I've had a lot of experiences in being a mother of someone else's kid because I've babysitted a lot of my cousins, my siblings, my cousin's kids, my brother's kids. 
So I'm very fortunate in that aspect that I have changed a lot of nappies, babysat a lot of kids, cleaned up a lot of vomit, but it was obviously something I did not actually want to have because I guess it was everywhere until I met TJ. And then I wanted to see, because I loved him so much, I wanted to multiply him and have little TJs, um, but also a little half of myself, you know, to see yourself in a child in the future is amazing because I could be like, oh, she so gets that from me. Or, you know. All those little moments. Yeah, all those little moments. It's definitely hard as a woman. I think I cried a lot, so did my mum. I think she cried more. You know, she wants grandkids and she was expecting it, you know, like yesterday. So the fact that, you know, I can't give her that um, grandkids, her and my dad, it's been really hard to accept. Yeah. Because uh, I've had two surgeries uh, where both tumours have attached to my ovaries. We've had to have them removed. And it wasn't my choice, um, <laughs> you know, to either live or potentially make kids, which is not necessarily a guarantee. So I chose life. And I also have um, kind of come to terms that I'm happy being the rich, always available and fun auntie. <laughs> so, you know, that I can't give to my own kids, you know, I'd like to give to those that I love around me. And, you know, all my friends are in their 30s, they're on the second marriages or multiple kids. So get a bit bittersweet when you see someone's announcing a pregnancy or anything like that. Ah, yeah. Getting choked up. <laughs> it's an emotional thing to think about something that you really want and to have that taken away is really hard. But I know that love that you pour and generosity that you're going to pour into all the beautiful babies that are around you are so so lucky to receive that from you so it's good that you still have that surrounding yeah I guess what thinking about how much your life has changed for you going forward do you ever stop and think back on your life that's already passed and if you have any regrets or maybe things that you would have spent more or less time on or focus on yeah so obviously our life has changed and um, most couples our age aren't going through this and probably won't ever in their lifetime or maybe in another 40, 30 years, maybe. I don't wish that upon anyone though. Uh, for us, or for me though, as an individual, I had a great life. I have no regrets. And it's not something that I ever look back at and be like, oh, I should have done more of this. Um, the truth is I would have loved to travel more when I was younger because I was focused on, you know, helping my parents pay off their house, you know, making them proud of me, building a career, those kind of things, you know, don't really have too much importance anymore. But I wouldn't say I have any regrets. I would just say it's a lesson learned and I still have, you know, time to explore all the things I want to do. Amazing. You do. You still like you've got that bucket list and that drive and that passion and that support from your partner to go and achieve all these things that you still want to achieve for yourself. Um, I guess what would be so say you do leave your loved ones behind. What would be your biggest concerns for them after you're gone? Um, 
My biggest concerns is obviously TJ. Um, the reason why buying a house is not so much a priority anymore, as much as I would love to. So if we win the lotto, that's definitely going to be there. Is I wouldn't want him to be stuck in a house with a mortgage, no wife and no kids. Um, so for us, we are pretty much living day to day, which I think is fun, <laughs> living on the edge. <laughs> but also, um, I think for me, experiencing loss already is the grief and the people I leave behind. That's really hard. Yeah, I can see that affecting you. And do you want to talk a little bit about that loss? Yeah, um, I feel like our society kind of um, makes a taboo to talk about death. Mm-hmm. Um, in my culture, though, we're very open about death. Like, we always speak about it. Sometimes it's a little bit harsh the way my parents do speak about it. They are very much like, well, one day you're going to die, so you've got to make it count while you're here. But I also think it's an important thing to hear. You know, and I also think it's important to speak about death. And, you know, for me, there's things like my parents. Um, I think it's really unfair for a parent to lose a child. It's not the natural order of life. Um, And um, TJ, he's so young, he's 32, so... Who gets married knowing that they might lose their wife soon? TJ does. <laughs> you know, my family and friends, you. I just want more time to share in the important milestones that everyone has. So I am someone who is driven by obligation and loves to just be at everything, you know? But doing treatment, my body betrays me a lot. It's a tough battle between the mind and the body when you know all you want is to yeah. be here and yeah. experience everything and your body is not necessarily cooperating with those desires. Oh, yeah. I don't even know my body anymore. So um, I think I took it for granted, a functioning, healthy body when I was younger and healthier and stronger. Um, and everyone does that. They take it for granted, you know. And I think it's really important to appreciate, you know, when you do have strength, you know, things like going to work, I miss, and I used to complain about. Um, Also exercising, gym membership where we went twice in a year. I miss working out because I can't work out anymore, can't do anything strenuous, you know. Um, So little things like that you know, having the energy to have an all-nighter, you know, go out with your friends, you know. I sometimes feel like, you know, after I've had the surgeries, it brought on the early onset menopause. So I am also going through that, which is fun. That would be tough. Yeah, fun. (laughs) But also, you know, it really does make me um, enjoy and savour when I do have the energy like today come out and do things you know that I enjoy doing you know one of the words that you said there was strength and how you need to make the most of it when you have it but what gives you your strength now day to day and what is the best way for your family and friends and loved ones to support you so you feel more of that strength honestly for me it's uh, my strength comes from my love of people 
So my family, my friends, uh, things that make me happy and make me feel alive. I want to live my life. So I am focused on when I do have the energy to maximize on that time, you know, and when I am not feeling myself to actually taking that time to actually rest and let my body, you know, restore itself. Yeah, I think we've learned a lot in this conversation from even, I think it was amazing to see that even before your illness, you would take stock on your own life and see where you were thriving and where you felt your passion and your drive and throw yourself into that. And since then have done so again and are dedicating yourself to your own passions, but also the people you love, which is so important. And I think everybody should take a lesson from that in taking a look at their own life and what really matters and not just doing that when you're faced with a traumatic event, but do that in the day-to-day, in the yearly, take stock on what really matters and where you're investing your time and your effort. And I thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing all your wisdom and lessons and experiences with us. And I will ask you to share one more piece of wisdom with the audience. And that is if you could give everybody advice that is listening about what really matters when limited time might be all that you have left, what would it be? Uh, It's really simple. It's three words. Live your life. You only have one, as far as we know. Um, Enjoy it while you're here. Uh, A lot of times people get stuck in their head and they are their worst own enemy. Uh, Doubt themselves. Take risks. Step out of your comfort zone. Spend time with your loved ones. Put your phones down. You know? I feel like it's really important, uh, you know, that, you know, you make those changes you need to. And, you know, acceptance is a big thing. For me, I find that everyone has an inner saboteur. And that's your biggest thing. All of those body issues that people have, you know, their doubts in themselves, let that crap go. It's not important. The main thing is that you're healthy, you're alive, and you have the opportunity to turn your life around and find the things that truly, truly make you content in this life. Because it's short. No day is guaranteed. Every day should be lived like it's your last. So for me, I feel like, you know, you need to love yourself because if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? So it's important to start there. And that radiates from you onto the ones that you care about. I think that was an incredibly powerful, heartfelt message for everybody listening to receive. And I think we all need reminding from that from time to time. And what better person to hear that from than you, Sal? Someone so incredibly inspiring. I have always found you as an inspiring person throughout my whole friendship with you. So Thank you. I couldn't, yeah, we couldn't have started Beyond the Clouds and this podcast without being inspired by people like you. So thank you so much for sharing your story, your vulnerabilities, your tears, your laughter with myself and the audience today. I think it's been an incredibly moving conversation. Thank you. Um, Before we go, I just wanted to uh, dedicate today um, to people that, you know, we have lost already to cancer um, and 
I'm just going to quickly mention them. It's my cousin Tawa, TJ's granddad uh, Bob, my brother Jay, my uncle Fosse, our auntie Paris, um, and recently, yesterday, oh, on the 1st of June, our uncle um, Ian. So there's a lot of people that have been affected in probably the last four or five years. So it has been a hard year for us, but it's been a hard, you know, five years for my whole family, including TJ's. So, you know, for all our angels above there, I'm grateful that I'm here living life for them. Thank you for that dedication to them. And I know I will carry them in my thoughts and my heart with me today. And I ask all the listeners to do the same. We've lost incredible people. I know a lot of the people listening probably have as well. And I wish to hold space and love for you all. Thank you for listening today. I hope you learned a lot. I know I sure did. You can follow Cell here at, at cellbam, S-E-L-B-A-M dot heart, H-A-R-T, to see all her amazing artwork. The things we discussed today may have been upsetting or triggering. If you are struggling, please be sure to reach out to a trusted person or professional. If you are or know someone who is dying or facing the loss of a loved one, please see the Beyond the Clouds website for a list of resources and services available to you. Beyond the Clouds would love to share your story as well. You can do so by sharing a blog post on our website, beyondthecloudsonline.com, or you can also reach out through the website if you want to be a podcast guest. There's really simple and easy forms to follow on the website, and I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Katie Dalmas, the founder of Beyond the Clouds. At Beyond the Clouds, we understand that when you're facing the loss of a loved one or grieving a loved one, it can feel like a dark cloud is hanging over you. Our purpose is to help you see through that and shine a light on terminally ill, their voice and their message.